Will you two beginners cut it out? Well, we're just trying to spot an ambush, Mr. Garris. Morons. I've got morons on my team. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 164 today and we are back to Erica's choice. What are we talking about today? Well, it's our sixth anniversary show. What an accomplishment for us. Can you believe it? Patented Erica Long answer, yes and no. Because on one hand, the odds are certainly against it. I think we've talked about this before. The statistic is that the great majority of podcasts shut down by their sixth month or 12th episode, whichever typically comes first. So we've made it way longer than most shows do. So here's to being stubborn, I guess, basically. What I would like to say at this point is a sincere thank you to everyone out there who's listening. I know some people have just come along recently. I know some of you out there have been listening basically since the very beginning. We appreciate all of you. Well, that goes for me too. And I'm not sure I could have imagined we would have lasted this long. So I want to say a sincere thank you to my podcast host, Cole Rolaine. You know me, I'm no quitter. I'm going to lash myself to the wheel of this thing until Dracula drains us dry and our ship floats into the harbor. Boy, do I. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's talk about what I picked. You and I are certainly a duo, correct? I don't see anybody else in the room. Nope. So how about we highlight one of the sexiest duos, aside from us, in history, and talk about their amazing collaboration. And I think it's a pretty great pick to celebrate our love of film because it is a pleasure to watch, at least for me, no matter how many millions of times I've seen it. And it's a bit of a departure for us because it's a Western. And that title is Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid from 1969, directed by George Roy Hill and written by William Goldman, starring Paul Newman, Robert Redford, and Catherine Ross. Now, as the opening title card attests, most of what follows is true, and that is the story of Butch Cassidy, a.k.a. Robert Leroy Parker, and the Sundance Kid, a.k.a. Harry Longbaugh, who, after a long stretch of bank and train robberies, are on the run from a posse and decide to take it on the lam down to Bolivia, along with Sundance's lover, Etta Place. I'm sure you know this, it was nominated and won a slew of awards for really all aspects of the film. Directing, cinematography, writing, music, sound, acting, and it's in the National Film Registry. Now, we've done a few modern-day interpretations of the Western, like Paris, Texas, There Will Be Blood, No Country for Old Men, one of our favorites. So why have we not yet gotten around to an earlier period Western? Even one like this that is coming at the end of the Hollywood Western heyday and maybe actually marked the true end of it. So in other words, why did it take so long to pick a Western? 
I'm not sure exactly. I do know that for a long time when I was younger, the traditional Western was not one of my favorite genres. I will say that. But I think that's a similar thing with musicals. I chalked that up to my own then flawed thinking and inexperience a little bit. I was painting the genre with a really broad brush. I was not doing the work and digging into the corners, kicking over enough tumbleweeds, basically. Well, I'm kind of like you, and I have my own faulty logic to go with it. So if these stories, at least in my mind, were typically about colonization from the colonizer's perspective, I am used to stories about the actual original colonies from my Virginia upbringing. I could look back on those stories as genteel almost somehow, and then forgetting that the original founding was somehow less grubby, less terrible, because of course it was not. So that's to say, I didn't really feel like I had a vested interest in Westerns. Kind of like war movies. So here's a big question for you. Is this a quote-unquote true Western? If there is any such thing as a true Western, maybe I should say conventional instead? Classical? Because it's ranked number seven on the AFI list of greatest Western, so at least some people think that it is. I think it is. I think it's a bridge, actually, between the old and the new. I think it straddles that line exactly in the middle. And it's funny that you asked that about what is a true Western, or if there is even such a thing, because as I was making my notes, I wrote down the exact same question for myself. And it boils down to me, basically, was there ever really a time when people weren't really being creative with the genre? There is a yes answer when it comes to what I think you were talking about when you say true Western. White hat, black hat, gunfights, horses and stagecoaches, some are simplistic, even jingoistic, I would say. And I think that is what I was responding to way back when, when I was initially turned off by the idea. I know we favor what we think of as revisionist or anti-Westerns and the like. But look at something like the Tall T or the man who shot Liberty Valance. People were dealing with more gray areas of morality and doing all kinds of interesting things within the confines of the genre. They didn't just start doing that in the 70s. I just had to see more to learn that. And interestingly, I still think I haven't turned the corner with war movies like you bring up. At least that's with the World War II era sort of rah-rah, isn't America great type film, not the great scope of history type war film. Well, you mentioned two great examples, The Tall T and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. They can be included in either of those classical Western or even anti-Western lists sometimes. And even as I ask those questions, I don't think it's a totally linear or straight format either. I mean, for example, George Stevens turned down this directing job, and John Borman, of all people, thought this film led to the decline of the film Western. And Borman may be right about that, and that's okay. All these things have their moments and their cycles. After the anti-Westerns of the 70s, actually, we wouldn't see another large-scale Western production until Silverado in 1985. And you know, that's a big favorite of mine. And even after the success of that, they were still few and far between. The ones I can think of that were actually big, that made an impact culturally, count them on one hand. Tombstone and a couple of others, maybe. Unforgiven, though that's, oh, that's super dark. 
But yeah, Borman may have gotten that one right. This may have been the death knell, or at least it signaled a significant slowing of the production of those type of films. I guess I take his statement as being that he's railing against that concept when I think of him as going in new and different directions. So it's not necessarily a bad thing to say goodbye to the typical film western. But I want to look at some context around the Western, as broad a term as that is. Well, I'm glad you bring up context, because with this particular example, where this falls historically is something that I think is very important to framing the conversation around it. I think a lot of people think of this as a 70s movie, quote unquote. But falling as it does right on the cusp of 1969 is not something that we should overlook. When this is coming out, all around were the dying gasps of the idealism of the 60s, which foreshadows our anti-heroes and their inability to resist the lure of commerce and capitalism. That's what I see as the biggest hallmark of the Western. It's the pursuit of money. Personal freedom is in there, but money is the big one. And then the Bolivian army is about as large a metaphor as you can get for no winning in the face of overwhelming authority. You had Cool Hand Luke, that was just a couple of years before this, and he was much more successful in his defiance, if only as a martyr, and one that would tell you that his own martyrdom was absurd. But Cool Hand Luke was during the summer of love, when you could still afford to stick to these ideals pre-Altamont, before everything got dark. But that ominous train you see coming down the tracks, that's the future, and you cannot stop it or run from it. Right. So where were George Stevens and John Borman during these changing times? I imagine that Bonnie and Clyde and the Wild Bunch and then this were really pretty tough for them to take if they wanted just more of the Green Berets, John Wayne pro-Vietnam stuff. So did you know that the Western was the most popular film genre from the 30s to the 60s? It does not surprise me one bit. And of course, it morphed and changed a lot during that time, starting with the landscape of the American West, tales of expansion, taming the wilderness, brutally most of the time, by men, women being kind of an afterthought. And that then leads me to one of the very first stories ever committed to film, and that is 1903's The Great Train Robbery, which was inspired by the Hole in the Wall Gang. A lot of meta stuff going on right now. Now, we were talking about all of these different possibilities within the genre. I mean, there are so many sub-genres out there, from spaghetti, to ramen, to kung fu, to black exploitation, to horror, to comedy. I could keep going. Do you have a favorite sub-genre and movie example? Spaghetti westerns, hands down, are my favorite branch of that old hanging tree, for sure. There are just too many favorites to list, but The Great Silence is up there. Death Rides a Horse, Once Upon a Time in the West, Cutthroat's Nine is incredible. I just love the grime and the sweat and the unrelenting sun that you get with those. They feel more desperate and real to me than the golden era Hollywood westerns do. The best way I can think of to make the distinction is that it's the difference between being dusty and being dirty, and I'd much rather it be dirty. Oh, I know that too. <laughs> <laughs> now, I grew up with comedy westerns like Cat Blue and Blazing Blue. Saddles. I have such a huge soft spot for those. But like you, spaghetti westerns, I think, top everything. Though, 
Lately, I've liked the horror element in something like Bone Tomahawk, for example. You should really see Cutthroat's Nine then. I have to. But the spaghettis, I got the bug from watching them on afternoon TV, and I also think that it helped that they were my dad's favorites. But even before that, truly, my very first intro was through my mom and Roy Rogers movies on Matinee at the Bijou, which I hated, and then to John Wayne, who I really couldn't care less about. Do you remember how you got started? My intro was similar to yours in that we were a Clint Eastwood household. And just like you, my dad was my gateway into the Man With No Name Dollars trilogy. My dad is very much one of those don't talk just to hear your head rattle kind of guys. And so this type of character appealed to him a great deal, I'm sure. And then I just inherited that. So all of that is probably why I still favor Spaghetti Westerns as my all-time favorite. You just dance with what brung you. It's true. And speaking of Clint... The Outlaw Josie Wales is a running joke in my family. We characterize it as the only movie my dad will watch, though that's not the case. But it seemed like it was for a long time. So we would always say, what do you want to watch? Okay, Outlaw Josie Wales. Those movies might not be the only movies that my dad will watch, but they're probably the only ones that he'll stay awake all the way through. And I remember that married with children joke about always trying to catch Hondo on TV. So we've given a lot of interesting titles to go explore, but what essential elements do you insist a Western should have? And before you answer that, as a Comanche, does that inform your answer? Well, the most important thing to me is that feeling of frontier. It has to capture that idea for me, that very American contradiction of all this room to roam and then the fact that that space is ultimately finite and we have to figure out what to do about that and within that it just comes down to things like geography means of conveyance and then wardrobe because a lot of these stories could be interchangeable with samurai films for example and while we're talking about wardrobe i don't have many sartorial indulgences but i love myself a good jacket and this wide whale corduroy blazer of the sundance kids that thing is iconic is that thing in the smithsonian if it's not it should be Funnily enough, my recommendation features an awesome jacket, but we'll get there in a while. And as far as my heritage is concerned, that makes all of this a lot dodgier for me. Stagecoach is abhorrent in the way that it treats natives. And also women, by the way. And we've come a long way, I know, but it's still not very good. But I do admit it's better than when we were played by Italians or Burt Lancaster or Elvis. What I latched onto when I was a kid, especially starting to watch these movies and not see my people reflected accurately, I thought, was the dignity of certain individual performances and performers, because I still couldn't count on movies to get our entire culture right, so I would focus on these guys in particular. I loved Chief Dan George and Will Sampson. He's one of my all-time favorites. And then more recently, Wes Studi. I love him. Shout out to a fellow Okie. Well, before I started to get into more of those frontier stories, pushing the boundaries, like you mentioned, I didn't know that it was the place, like Sergio Leone said, where life has no value. So I tended to think of Westerns as being cowboys, gunslingers, Indians. I assumed there would be a lot of bloodbaths or cattle drives, which were the most boring part of any Western to me. I assumed there would be saloons, dance halls, maybe a church lady or a school marm thrown in there. 
that it all just seemed so simplistic. But I'm glad that I've gotten to see more examples of the art form. And then you have something like this that comes along and then bends the genre or combines genres in all these interesting ways, because I think this has to be the Rosetta Stone for modern buddy action movies. It laid down a template that I don't know has ever been improved upon. I talked about the sexy duo. I was not referring to Butch and Sundance themselves, but to Newman and Redford. By the way, Paul Newman was 44 at the time. Robert Redford was 33. They just glow within the frame. I've got a couple of other examples, but it shows just how rare that combination is. Think of something like Heat or Ocean's Eleven, but that's probably closer to something like It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. I do want to bring up Thelma and Louise. That was intended as a direct wink at this film. Well, and someone needs to tell them they got the jumping off the cliff part wrong, if that's the case. But <laughs> I do yeah. see what you're saying there. I can understand that being a nod for sure. But you're exactly right about the charisma here. This is one of the earliest movies that I can remember being a favorite. And practically all of that comes down to one of the oldest reasons we have for going to the movies. It's incredibly fun and it's constantly entertaining. And the main reason for that is this remarkable pairing of star power. Now, there were other highly successful double acts in movie history, obviously, and you mentioned a great ensemble with It's a Mad, 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 Mad World that had every legendary comedian in the business in it at one time. But this was the first one of these that I felt like belonged to my generation. And there is nothing more responsible for the enduring appeal and success of this movie than the charisma and chemistry of the two leads. There's just something to be said for personality and the alchemy, the way these things commingle. But even with that, it did receive a mixed to negative reception from the critics, but I think this is one of those instances where the public got it right. Yeah, I had no idea really until I was reading about it that it wasn't a huge blockbuster success immediately. Well, that's why I mentioned the public. Box office, it definitely was. It was the number one movie of the year, but critically, not so much so. Sometimes you just don't know until you see how it works on screen, whether this stuff is going to go over or not. You look at the top grossing stars of the 60s. Newman was obviously money in the bank, but Redford isn't even the top Robert on that list. Robert Ryan, Robert Mitchum, and Robert Duvall all come in ahead of him in terms of putting butts in seats at that point. He'd done a lot of stage and television, but only a handful of feature films, most notably Inside Daisy Clover and Barefoot in the Park, and both of those really play on that golden-haired, immaculate beauty. But Newman was only behind John Wayne and Julie Andrews for the entire decade of the 60s. 50% of that, I agree with. But when you put Newman and Redford together, magic just happens. It is undeniable when you look at the product that's on the screen. And their legacy as one of the great double acts in movie history is built on only two movies, this and The Sting, which only goes to show you how great those two movies are. Well, let's look at some of the other actors who are considered for their roles. I don't think that there's a bad choice here, but it would have... Mm. <laughs> oh, okay. It would have thrown off the chemistry for sure. Steve McQueen, Warren Beatty, Marlon Brando, Dustin Hoffman for some reason, and then for Etta Place, Jacqueline Bissett and Natalie Wood. 
You're right about all of those potentially working in their own way. The one I'm thinking about that to me is completely unthinkable. At one point, Jack Lemmon was proposed as the Sundance Kid. I cannot even wrap my mind around that one. And he does come in at number 10 on that list. So they're thinking box office. I get Dustin Hoffman, I guess, a little bit, but that goes back to the comedy angle. I liked him so much in Little Big Man. And thank Steve McQueen's stupid ego for bailing on this because of top billing disputes. That just reminds me of the absurdity of The Fast and the Furious when you have Vin Diesel, Jason Statham, and The Rock, all with contract stipulations that they cannot lose a fight on screen. Well, let's focus on something that the Fast and the Furious movies don't necessarily get right, and that is the screenplay. (laughs) William Goldman. I've now picked arguably the top two William Goldman works, The Prince's Bride, and now this. You mean William Goldman's perfect script. This is his best, I think. And I will stand on Robert Town's coffee table in my cowboy boots and say that it's better than Chinatown. I mentioned this already. I think the genre bending in this is really brilliant. It's a comedy at heart, I think, more than anything else. It's just pure entertainment. And Goldman, he would occasionally lament that audiences were laughing so much at what he thought was tragedy. Hey, Goldman, don't make it so funny next time if that's what you're worried about. And then have two great actors play straight men or have great comedic lines, depending on the situation. And then I think one thing I don't see mentioned very much, I think this falls as much into that gentleman thief genre as it does the Western 30 years earlier. And you would have had William Powell playing one of these guys. Boy, that would be pretty darn fun to see. The Writers Guild of America puts this at number 11 on its 101 greatest screenplays ever written. Bollocks. So you've got to go to some more coffee tables in your cowboy boots. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, William Goldman was attracted to this story because of F. Scott Fitzgerald's line, there are no second acts in American lives. But Butch and Sundance certainly got one. They were actually bigger legends in the Bolivia period than they were in the U.S. So I guess you have to amend that to be there are no second acts in parentheses South American lives. There you go. And he wrote this as a screenplay because he didn't want to do the research to make it into a completely authentic novel. So he adheres to a lot of the historical record, but then makes some interesting changes. And let's take a look at a couple of those. The studio heads at the time turned this down right and left because of the portrayals of the heroes. Studio heads known for their vision. Absolutely. These guys run away, and quote-unquote, John Wayne didn't run away. And Goldman put in less action, less shootouts, fewer fights than in that classical Western. But I do want to say, in reality, Butch and Sundance actually did run away. Because Goldman invented the super posse. Because the real Butch and Sundance left the country when they heard that there were some people on their trail. Pinkertons. (laughs) Pinkertons. <laughs> so Goldman makes it into more of an urgent need, and then this mythical group of trackers and lawmen that are so interesting to watch. It really does upend and I think expand what's possible for the Western genre when it does that. And that's precisely the point. It's not a John Wayne movie. A lot of that typical action that you mentioned that we might see in earlier Westerns, I love that it's replaced by this extended chase sequence. Ebert said it bogged this thing down, but I couldn't disagree more. I like the slower burn, and then there are at least three instances of essential character development, and I'll get to those, but we would not get those unless it is moving at this speed. If it's going faster than this, we wouldn't get the time to concentrate on that. 
You mentioned the cliff scene in passing, and Goldman, by the way, says that that is the single most important scene he ever wrote. It shows what he calls stupid courage. Jumping into the rapids when Sundance can't swim, but they have to get away from the posse. And then there's another instance of stupid courage, that final scene, when they talk about their next move, going into what is basically their last stand. You can't knock stupid because sometimes stupid is all you have. And sometimes that isn't even enough, and you don't even know it. When that Bolivian army arrives, unbeknownst to Butch and Sundance, it just recasts everything that has come before that led us here. And when I hear that line ringing in my head, the next time I say, let's go someplace like Bolivia, let's go someplace like Bolivia, it is now freighted with so much sad irony. It has completely changed the way I think about all those moments. And now another intention of Goldman's that I read about really cast the film in a different light for me. He looked at Butch as a Jack Benny character because the real Butch was said to be incredibly affable. So he chose Jack Benny because Jack Benny is so likable. He doesn't have this string of killer jokes, but people just liked him. They followed along with him. They were taken with his quirks and mannerisms. And I think you can't get a better actor to play that than Paul Newman. It's almost a continuation of how attractive and magnetic Cool Hand Luke was. And then, of course, the writing just sells it. He gets the best lines from start to finish. Okay, so all that being said, which of us is Butch and which of us do you think is Sundance? Who is the affable one? And then who is the more enigmatic, good-looking loner type? I've got to be Butch, right? Trick question, I'm both. <laughs> you big baloney. <laughs> You dirty dog. Do I at least get to be Etta? Oh my God. I would love that. I don't know how to take that. <laughs> I don't know if that means that I'm not or you wish I were. But anyway, we'll set that aside for a second. Let's just say Etta Place, as portrayed by Catherine Ross, has a, a lot of good qualities. Well, let's talk romanticizing the outlaw. There's something that I want to read to you from the Oxford Companion to Film. The film gives a highly romanticized version of the exploits of two real outlaws, cheerfully eclectic in style and reminiscent of a range of films which includes Jules et Jim and Bonnie and Clyde, it achieves its own distinctive charm and poignancy with added appeal from its musical score and theme song. So where and when do you think the romanticizing is happening and do you consider it to be disingenuous? Because up to a certain point, we haven't seen them harm anyone seriously, but then we do see them kill. Do you feel differently about them at that point? Where and when is this romanticizing happening? Uh, from the very first frame to the very last, I would say. You've got that sepia tone beginning, which is just beautiful. This silent film intro. This implies, much like you're talking about with the great train robbery from 1903, that they are being canonized in popular culture within just a few years of their banded activity, maybe even before they were dead. And I think it's kind of perfect that their outlaw career sort of started concurrently with the invention of the moving picture. There's no doubt that I am rooting for them. It's the same for you, right? Oh, a thousand percent. I mean, I even wrote down at one point, I can understand the romanticism because we haven't seen them do anything terrible. And it's a testament to my rose-colored glasses that I forget and think they're so easygoing until they do kill people, and then I still don't feel any differently about them. 
Well, there are all these things that bring me over to their side. And that starts from the very beginning, too. We see in this opening scene that times are already changing. Butch laments these security measures that he sees going into place in this bank that used to be such a beautiful bank. And we find ourselves a little bit sad about that. Or at least I did. I don't know if you did. There's a finality to all of these gestures of implementing these procedures now. All these locks closing and shutters coming down. It seems like this is it. It's over. The way it used to be is done. And then you've got the engineer on the train who's starstruck by their encounter. And I think a lot of that you can point to the fact that Butch is portrayed as this working class hero. This is definitely how outlaws get the people on their side. For instance, he looks out for Woodcock when they blow up that safe. And then by the time they hit the flyer on the return trip, it's like he and Woodcock are old friends, basically. And it's definitely a class thing, too, because there is that point at which Butch is railing at the sky against E.H. Harriman, saying that he probably inherited every penny he ever had. But where this turns, I think the thing that you're talking about, possibly, that definitely moved me and it slowed this down and made me consider more of this, that shootout with the bandits in Bolivia when bodies end up scattered everywhere, that takes a toll on him. You can see that register. You can see him processing that. And it's not just a reflection of the possible fate that awaits him. I think there's a little bit of it that these are his contemporaries and his peers. These are people living just like he lives. You don't get that same sense of self-reflection with Sundance, I don't think. He's a little colder. Redford is more enigmatic in that regard. He's keeping everyone, including the audience, I think, at arm's length a little bit. More like the character we'd see him play in a couple years in Downhill Racer, which I love that he's a bastard in that. But I guess in this case, being on their side till the bitter end like we are, being handsome really goes a long way. And I think it's the fun that comes through, too, because Redford did say this was the most fun film that he ever participated in the making of. Handsome sure does go a long way because we're not really thinking about who he is stealing from. It's one thing to steal from Harriman, but if you think about those smaller banks, this is before insurance. So he's taking money directly from people sometimes, but I guess who cares? So do you think that there's something American about our fixation on romanticizing the outlaw. I think this could apply to Bonnie and Clyde, too. Is it romantic because they're so beautiful and charismatic? That's a yes and no thing as well. It's definitely not born here. Robin Hood is an obvious touchstone, and that character's origins go back to the UK in the 13th century. So we brought that type of folklore over with us when we came to these shores. But we do love us some gunslingers, particularly, I think, during the Depression, when it was the little guy against the bank. We think of Jesse James as sticking it to the man and being a friend of the working man when nothing could be further from the truth. And I think it's so interesting to see that other dark tone as reflected when that sheriff character who has known them for such a long time sums it up really well. Your times is over and you're gonna die bloody. But not just yet. So on the lighter side, I've got a question for you. Do you have a favorite side character? News Carver has to be one of everybody's favorites, I want to say. Kenneth Mars' sheriff trying to round up a posse only to be interrupted by the bicycle salesman. That scene is so great. I can't even keep track of all the characters that I love in this. Sweet face and how quickly he gives them up when a gun is shoved in his face. Lord Baltimore. I loved the idea of that character so much that I wanted him to be a real historical character. When I first heard him say, 
he's strictly an Oklahoma man. That obviously really spoke to me. And then one you mentioned, Jeff Corey as Sheriff Bledsoe. He is one of my all-time favorite character actors. And that whole speech he gives, you should have let yourselves get killed a long time ago. He's the voice of history, but they are not quite ready to face that no matter how true it is. That scene is absolutely one of my favorites in this whole thing. This is where it finally injects a bit of reality and darkness that I like a whole lot. And then Struther Martin. He's colorful. How can you not love that guy? So by the way, that's our second Cloris Leachman in a row, which is pretty fun. I want to give a shout out to Henry Jones. He's the bicycle salesman. We just saw him in a rewatch of Arachnophobia, by the way. You listed my other favorites. I'm also going to throw in George Firth as Woodcock. George Firth wrote the book for Company, by the way. Did you know that he and Paul Newman actually died within a month of each other? I had no idea. Odd little coincidence there. But yes, this is jam-packed with greats. It wasn't because someone blew up the train car they were on, was it? I don't think so. Now, ladies and gentlemen, messieurs, Bert Bacharach and Hal David, let's talk about the music. Now, because the music is now such a big deal and was so controversial at the time, I forget that it's actually used quite sparingly. There's the small piano to start. Of course, B.J. Thomas singing Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head during the bicycle scene. There's some music around their journey headed south. There's that Onda Nueva around Bolivia. Struther Martin's song. Etta leaving the last big gunfight. But what do you think about the music? I like it a lot, especially the anachronistic quality of it. It really suits the way that these two eras, the 60s and the turn of the century are in communication with one another. Butch and Sundance did not converse like it is 1903, and I think the music comments on that as well in a very clever way. And I especially like how they use it in that second sepia tone interlude. After this last hurrah in New York, it makes you feel so many things in such a short time, and then it especially underscores how landing in that far-flung corner of Bolivia right after that could be such a disappointment and such a frustration. What struck me is that I was watching it first at a remove from 1903 and from 1969, so I just took it sort of as a matter of course. And truly, anachronistic or not, raindrops keep falling on my head is just one of my favorite uses of music in film. And yet another aspect of the film that is so wonderful, that's the cinematography by the great Conrad Hall. We've talked about him in the In Cold Blood episode. He's connected to several of our other favorites too, for me, Black Widow. For you, Electra Glide in Blue, Fat City, Cool Hand Luke, Harper, which was also a Goldman screenplay. We watched that a couple of years ago, not too long ago. Do you have a favorite contribution of his to the film? It has to be the best feature of the movie, the faces. Every shot of Catherine Ross's face especially, the way he lit her, she never looked more beautiful again in any movie she was ever in. The quality of the light indoors and out, it imparts a timeless quality to her face that is just remarkable. For me, it's the opening scene in the saloon. It's in sepia. It's a setup because when they get out into the world, the world is not sepia. It's not black and white anymore. But still, the single most interesting aspect of the film for me is around gender roles and those contrasts. And let's talk about masculinity first. 
When I was first learning about the film, I tended to think of this period of time, the late 60s, and its icons as being more sensitive, at least in comparison to what came before, especially with John Wayne, for example. But then I tend to think of George Roy Hill as being hyper-masculine and aggressive, but nothing is that cut and dried. So how do you think the film either affirms or subverts notions of masculinity? It subverts all of that stuff constantly, I feel like, and very brilliantly. That opening scene that you were just talking about, when Sundance is accused of cheating and that table clears out, we know from the history of this kind of film, or at least we think we do, this is only going to go one way. And then it's flipped on its head with this, what feels like a very well-rehearsed comedy routine between them, almost. And then the fight with Harvey probably has to be the best example. That immense phallic knife that he pulls out. One, two, three, go scene. Yeah, that kick in the balls, that is a literal exploitation of masculinity as a weak point. And it diffuses the situation. It turns out that it's brains, not brawn, that's going to win the day. And it even emphasizes the fact that Harvey, as huge and terrifying as he is, he's grown more clever with this idea of hitting the flyer twice. And then little things crop up all along the way. When their run becomes more desperate, when their pursuers are so relentless, Newman does this little thing right before he asks Sundance who he thinks the toughest lawman is. There's this resignation in his manner with his head hanging down and you can almost feel him give up, but then not quite. That posse is not here to take prisoners, and he has to know that. He has to know that E.H. Harriman has instructed them to bring him their corpses. So there's a very real flash of doubt when he's pondering this. And then by the end, they are completely victims of their own feelings of invincibility and their ego, their flawed logic. How in the world did they think they were going to go to Bolivia as the only Americans around who also happen to be robbing every bank in sight. They have no support system. It's just arrogant madness to try that. I'm thinking about something that you said earlier about the film being a bridge in time periods. And I think so much of what was involved in the film and who was involved were almost bridges too. If you think about the real context, Butch and Sundance left the U.S. in about 1901. They died in 1908. Think about the history that happened in that period. And then think about George Roy Hill, who was about 48 when he made this. He was a war vet and a theater vet. So many interesting contradictions that were possible during that time. And he said, I have no stomach for real violence. That's why we ended up with a scene, like towards the end, when they are bandaging each other. So on the flip side of this masculinity coin, we've got to have femininity. But here I really mean a woman's place in women's roles. By the way, one of those maybe unintended consequences of this buddy movie template stuff we talked about earlier is that it directly resulted in fewer interesting parts for adult women. The men were just so damn gorgeous and making great box office. But I want to look at how William Goldman tells the story of women of the time through Etta. And Etta is the one real historical figure here who we know basically nothing about, including her actual profession. The two options would have been prostitute or school teacher, basically. We don't know what her real name was or when and where she died. And one of the single best uses of exposition that makes you forget its exposition is how neatly he 
explicates this. Etta says she's 26, single, and a school teacher, which is basically the bottom of the pit. And we're talking 1900 or so, and she's completely right, and she would continue to be right for quite a while. Well, I mentioned this before. Fictional or not, I love the qualities that this woman has. I love her because that feeling of nothing to lose, it manifests itself as her being completely game. She's one of the gang, even down to wearing men's clothes. She has to adopt men's dress for practical reasons in Bolivia, but it works on another symbolic level as well. Like you were saying, with these buddy comedies, same thing. Only the men get to have the fun. And then I think in terms of their relationship, she gets different things from each one of them. I find that incredibly interesting. Do you think that together they make her ideal man, or at least as close as she'll get in her lifetime? For sure. When she goes to hug them both equally, I think you see that. And I love her during the bicycle scene, too. I love that whole scene. I know that people balked at that bit, too, claiming that it ruined the flow. It didn't fit with the rest of the story. You have to remember what was happening in the culture and world cinema at the time. Pop art, the French New Wave. You have all these playful juxtapositions happening all over the place. But then most notably, of all of these things, all of her characteristics... I love the fact that she participates on her own terms. She lays this out. I will do all of these things, but I will not watch you die. I love that speech. I guess people who didn't like the bicycle scene just don't want to have fun. Just don't want to look at sun-dappled gorgeousness. But I do still like that it makes this world come alive. Because think about another piece of art that's been called a Western. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, one of your favorites from 1971. And that woman's lot is just as clear, but more so. That type of work is the only choice when there's nothing else to be had when your protection falls away as it does for Shelley Duvall. That's the only place to go. So her making a choice is really striking. Yeah, McCabe and Mrs. Miller is definitely at the darker end of that revisionist Western. I don't want to say too much about it because that's one of my episode choices for 2022. But I will say you are exactly right in terms of what opportunities were available to women at the time and watching all of that dwindle away until there is so little left that they're fighting for scraps, basically. It's a reflection of the late Victorian period, too. If you watch something like The French Lieutenant's Woman, it's also explained there. So before we cut and run and take it on the lamb, do you have a favorite, quote-unquote, straight or classical Western, or are you just more attracted to those that subvert expectations? I do have some more traditional favorites, definitely. Bend of the River with Jimmy Stewart is way up there on that list. Shane, Rio Bravo, My Darling Clementine. Everyone should see The Searchers just for how good it looks. I do admit, though, my favorites are still probably always going to be from Butch and Sundance forward. But Going back to the bridge analogy, this is sometimes a pretty straight western in its own way, too. Outlaws don't retire. The movie itself maintains that myth down to the final frame by not forcing us to watch them die. Freeze that frame and they fade into history just as beautiful as we remember them. Well, you picked one of my favorite classicals, My Darling Clementine from 1946, that's John Ford. I am way more attracted to those that do subvert expectations, and that leads me to my recommendation. But it's also kind of a bridge, because I picked 310 to Yuma, the original. Yeah, I know why you picked this. Hello, Glenn Ford. Thank y'all. 
I do adore the remake with Russell Crowe. Both of them subverted my expectations. They're both different, so I recommend watching both of them. But specifically for this instance, I want to direct your attention to Glenn Ford, who is sex on legs here. He makes a jean jacket look even better than it normally does. And I can attest to how good a jean jacket looks because you just bought one. So 310 to Yuma is from 1957, directed by Delmer Daves, with Glenn Ford and Van Heflin about a poor rancher who takes on a job of escorting an outlaw to justice to earn some extra money. And I always forget this. It's based on a short story by Elmore Leonard, so I think that places it firmly in the pulp world of subversion, but maybe still with a foot in the past. So what did you choose? I am going this time with another favorite outlaw story in recent years, and that is The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford from 2007. That's written and directed by Andrew Dominic, and it stars Brad Pitt, Casey Affleck, Mary Louise Parker, Sam Rockwell, Sam Shepard, and Ted Levine, and it has music from Nick Cave and Warren Ellis. It's about the relationship between the elusive and unpredictable James and one of his gang members, Ford, who has become less enamored of Jesse as time has gone on in the period leading up to James's murder. This is just one that I like more and more every time I go back and watch it. There's just something about its rhythms that appeal to me. It's in no hurry to tell the story, and it manages to tease a lot of nuance out of these internecine squabbles within this motley group. The performances are uniformly good, but I think the real reason to watch, though, is Roger Deakins' immaculate and inventive cinematography. That sequence with the nighttime train robbery is worth the price of admission all by itself. It's a compelling story, well told, and beautifully shot, and it does still find us, even in 2007 and beyond, on the fence a century later about just how we feel about these criminals. So once again, that's two great recommendations, 310 to Yuma and the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. And that brings us to the end of episode 164. First and foremost here, I wanted to say thank you to John Merrill and Brandon Crow for becoming the newest benefactors of the podcast. John with a donation and Brandon with a Patreon pledge. We appreciate that very much. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. And at John's suggestion, actually, I have also added a simple donation button back to the website. So if Patreon is not your thing and you'd rather make a one-time PayPal donation, you can go to magiclanternpodcast.com and just look for the donate button in the upper right corner under the header. And that's in the main drop-down menu if you're on a mobile device. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, Leanne Kubich, Spencer Seams at the Shoot the Piano Player podcast, Brian Sauer, Laura Cannon, and Jeff Duncanson. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Audible, Amazon Music, 
Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 